3. I trust that by this time um, you have turned there and you are ready to study the Bible. So let's again just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to um, bless our Bible study time. So Father, we just thank you, Lord, for um, the gift of truth. Oh Lord, this world is filled with so much noise and so many lies. But Lord, we come tonight to an anchor and a place, Lord, where we can hear things that never change. And Lord, that we can build our lives upon. And so we're asking, Lord, that as we look into this word, this living word, we pray that it would look into us and that we would be changed and transformed, that we would be challenged and instructed, and that we would be blessed, Lord, as we hear from another world things, Lord, that are profitable for our life and that help us know you more. So would you please bless this time in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin tonight by reading a rather lengthy portion of our chapter in Luke 3. So if I could just draw your attention to Luke chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being the governor of Judea, and Herod, being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, And Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. That would be John the Baptist. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, He that has two coats, let him impart to him that has none. And he that has meat or food, let him do likewise. Then came also the publicans, that's the tax collectors, to be baptized. And he said unto them, or they said, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. About 18 years has passed historically between the ending of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. 
Where we left off, Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of Rome, was the reigning power of that time. And he was the reigning power at the birth of Christ. And his reign continued until about 14 AD. He was then succeeded by his stepson, whose name was Tiberius, the man whom we're introduced to in the opening verses of chapter 3. And his reign lasted until about 37 AD. And we're told that it was in the 15th year of Tiberius that these events took place. And so the date for the timeline of Luke's gospel and really the introduction of John the Baptist and of Jesus, our Lord, is about 28 or 29 AD. Now, when Herod the Great died, and he was called Herod the King of Judea, And he was a powerful man, and he was in charge of that whole region of the world. And when he died in about 4 BC, his kingdom or his um, area of, of rulership was divided amongst four people, three of them his sons, and one of them uh, we know very little about. We're told that Herod Antipas, he was set over the Galilee region in the north. Herod Archelaus was initially set over Judea, which would include the area of Jerusalem. His tenure didn't last long, though, because he was a little unruly, and so he was removed by Tiberius, and Pontius Pilate was then put there in his place. Thus, John tells us that Pilate was the governor over that area of Jerusalem and Judea. Philip, the Tetrarch, was over the northernmost, and Licinius, the Tetrarch, was over the far northern uh, part that would extend into Syria. And then we're also told that Annas and Caiaphas were both the high priests at that time. Now, this is the only time in Jewish history that there were two high priests. Traditionally, and according to the Levitical code, there would only be one high priest. But the reason why there's two at this time is because of the influence that the high priest would have in that he served for an entire lifetime, he became a threat to the authority of Rome because his allegiance was singularly towards the Jews or the Israeli people. And so Rome's response to that is that they limited the reign of the high priest and they appointed their own after a time. Now, because Annas didn't die, he was regarded by the Jews as the legitimate high priest. And Caiaphas was the Roman appointee. And thus there was two high priests, one that was kind of uh, held in allegiance by the Jews and the other one that was appointed by Rome. And so John tells us that there, or I'm sorry, Luke tells us that there was two high priests at this time. And so Luke gives to us all of these historical figures and the dates of their reign. And the reason why he does that is in order to attach the scriptural record to the historical record. Now, at the time that the gospel of Luke was penned, The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark were already in circulation. They no doubt would have been read by Luke. He would have read Matthew and Mark, as well as many other fragmented accounts that would give various details of Jesus' life and his ministry. But as Luke, who was a student and a scholar, as he would read those accounts, him and others like him recognized that there was something missing. They realized that in their day, the historicity of Jesus' existence was a given fact. I mean, we're talking about this is just 
10 years, 20 years, 30 years outside of the crucifixion. So no one doubted the fact that Jesus was a historical figure. But Luke had the foresight to see that a day would come when people would begin to question and say, well, was Jesus even real? And he recognized that the gospel accounts did very little to attach the historicity or the historical Jesus to the account of secular history. And so Luke, encouraged by others and realizing a desire that he had within himself, set forth to investigate the things concerning Jesus himself. And the outcome of that is the chronology that we have in the book of Luke. And thus what we have in this gospel is we have a man who was aware of a need, realizing that he was equipped to meet that need. And then with diligent effort and the help of God's Holy Spirit, he penned the gospel. Now, the the reason I bring that up as we read the historical account of Luke is, first of all, because that's exactly what you and I are called to do as citizens of the kingdom of God in the world today. We walk with him for a while. We get to know who he is. We begin to discover his will and the gifts that he's given to us. And he begins to place desires in our hearts and in our minds. And then he gives to us a vision and we begin to see where there's a lacking, where there's something that's missing, something that needs to be done. And as we begin to pray, we say, God, what are you going to do to meet that need? God begins to pull the strings of our heart and to say, I'm calling you to meet that need. You're the one that sees it. So seize it. You see it, S-E-E it. So seize it, S-E-I-Z-E it. And that's exactly what Luke did. And it's exactly what we're called to do. In Proverbs chapter 30, Solomon wrote this. He says that there are four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. And then he says, just as he lists those, the fourth one, and I love this. He says, the spider takes hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. That's a great picture, isn't it? I mean, you picture a palace that's made for a king, tailored to suit the needs of royalty. And yet it becomes the house of a spider because in wisdom, that spider learns how to carve out a place for her to live within it. Well, we're citizens of the kingdom of God and we dwell within the palace of it. And God says, hey, listen, if you're wise, if you understand, then carve out a place within the kingdom. Be a spider on the wall, so to speak. See a need, recognize your gifts, pray and ask God, am I called to meet this need? And then jump in and get going. Don't wait for anyone to appoint it for you. That's what Luke did, and thus we have the gospel. And the other reason I open that way is because that's the way Luke opens. He gives to us the details of what was going on historically so that we might understand what was going on. But then he tells us that it was in those days that the word of God came to John the Baptist while he was there in the wilderness. Now, we've heard much about John the Baptist in the past weeks of our study. He was a miraculous baby. He was born to a priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, after they had been barren for a long time and waited for God to provide for them a child. And the voice of God came to them and told them that he would be a prophet and that God would use him to pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. Jesus would say of John the Baptist later on that all of the prophets prophesied until John. What that means to us is that John the Baptist is not a New Testament figure, even though we see his story and his ministry in the New Testament part of the Bible. He attaches the ministry of John to the Old Testament prophets. 
And thus John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he was called for a very specific reason. We were told that he would come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And we see even in his calling, we see very much like Elijah. Elijah was a man who came kind of out of nowhere. He was a Tishbite and then he was on the scene. We don't know where he came from or what he did or how he grew up. It's kind of like John the Baptist. We know where he came from. But all of a sudden, he's about 30 years old, and he shows up on the scene. And all we know about him is that he was in the desert until the day of his being brought forth unto Israel. And he's got a message because the word of God's been put in his heart. We learn of John in the other Gospels that he was a very eccentric man. That he lived in the desert. He made his clothing of camel's hair. He wore a leather belt, and his food was locusts. That's the bugs. And wild honey. That's what he ate. And we see that he grew up in isolation. He's a man that forsook the path that was laid out before him by his parents. He had a cush job awaiting him. He could have gone into the ministry. He was in line to be one of the priests. And that was a great job to have in those days. But there was something that was working deeper within the heart of this man. And thus at some point he was driven into the desert. And in the crucible of isolation, a prophet was forged as God worked upon his heart. And it tells us that the word of God came to him there. He was prepared by God for the ministry that God had for him. Now, his ministry is summarized in the second half of of the verse and then on into verse 3. It tells us that John came unto the people and that he preached unto them the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So if you were going to summarize the ministry of John the Baptist, he was sent forth with a baptism of repentance for the people. Now, baptism. This is the first time that we read about baptism in the Bible, you know, between the Gospels, when it's John the Baptist who's doing the baptizing. It's an immersing or a washing. Though it's the first time we read about it, it wasn't something that was unfamiliar to the Jews. They would often baptize people when they would become converts to Judaism. It was part of the ritual washing. And it spoke similar to what baptism, water baptism does for us today. A washing out of the old life and a cleansing to bring forth into the new. But there was another reason why they would baptize in those days. When a man or a woman would come to the Lord and worship. And they would go into the temple. For the women, it would be the court of women. For the men, it would be the court of the men, the holy place, wherever they could go. They could never go in there being defiled. And so they would wash. They would mikvah, it was called in the Hebrew. And it was a form of the baptism uh, in these days. And so for John to be baptizing in the Jordan River would not be strange for them. We're told that the form of that baptism is that it was a baptism of repentance. And that is that John was calling them to an account for their sins. And thus the baptism was for them an outward show that they were repentant towards God and that they were willing and wanting to receive his will for their lives. Now, the purpose for John's ministry, the reason why he was sent with this message and to do this work is given to us as It's attached to a prophecy that was given by Isaiah way back in Isaiah chapter 40. He says he's the voice of one that's crying in the wilderness that says, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. 
Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth so that all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. And what we learn about John's ministry and the purpose for John's ministry is that he was sent as a forerunner of the Messiah to prepare the way for the coming king. Now, the passage of scripture that Luke quotes and that Matthew also quoted in his synopsis of John's ministry, Isaiah chapter 40, I mentioned it last week. It's a section of scripture that's called the consolation. It goes from Isaiah 40 all the way through to the end of Isaiah, and it specifically concerns the ministry of Christ. And the beginning of that passage of scripture starts with the messenger that would prepare the way of the Lord. And thus, John, it's being revealed to us here, is that messenger that would prepare the way of the Lord. But what was the purpose? Why would Messiah need a messenger to go before him? I mean, wouldn't you think that Jesus would be the man who needs no introduction? Well, we're told that he would bring every mountain low, that every valley would be filled, that the crooked places would be made straight, and that the rough places would be made smooth. In other words, the purpose of John was to remove all obstacles so that the people would be able to clearly see and recognize the Messiah when he comes for what he is. Now, if you can imagine for a minute that you were on a road that was filled with hills and valleys and twists and turns and it had rough places and smooth places, and you were trying to look down that road and see what was at the end of that road, you wouldn't be able to because of the rough terrain. But if someone could come in and they could level that road perfectly and remove all the rough areas and make it straight as an arrow, then you'd be able to see to the vanishing point and recognize what's at the end of that road. And so John's ministry, in a sense, was that he would remove the obstacles that would keep people from recognizing Christ when he comes. Now understand something. Christ did not come for the sake of coming to a physical locality. He was coming into the hearts of people. That's where Christ comes. See, if the coming of Christ was just about the physical presence of Jesus in Jerusalem in those days, then what would that mean for us? It would mean nothing. And the ministry of John would mean nothing. But Christ didn't come for the sake of physical location. He came for the sake of spiritual regeneration. And that happens in the heart. And thus the obstacles that keep people from recognizing Jesus don't exist in the terrain of life. They exist within the heart of man. And so the ministry of John was to remove the obstacles that keep people from recognizing the ministry and the salvation that's provided by Jesus. And thus the message of John is given to us by Luke. And the message of John gives to us what those obstacles are And it shows us how John seeks to remove those obstacles so that people can see Christ when he comes. Now, it's worth pointing out before we get into John's message and understand what those obstacles are, that John had quite a following. That this obscure prophet that had no radio announcer, that didn't have a website for people to check out, that could only be addressed or heard of, advertised by word of mouth, that there was multitudes of people that came to listen to John preach. The Pharisees and the religious elite were there. They were well aware of John's ministry and what it stood for. The common people were there. The rich and the poor alike would come to hear the ministry of John. The publicans or the IRS, the tax collectors, 
They were aware. The people that worked for the government and the municipalities, they were out there. Even Roman citizens were told that the soldiers were there. The soldiers would probably be exclusively or at least mostly Romans. And so John had a vast audience amongst all the people that lived in the land in those days. And he even had a voice in the palace because we're told that he has an interaction with Herod and that Herod loved to hear the preaching of John. So John was well-known, and John was well-respected. Even the Pharisees tried to pit John the Baptist against Jesus when Jesus' ministry was growing. They They tried to drive a wedge between the two of them. And then later on, even Jesus used John the Baptist to silence the Pharisees when he asked them the question. And he said, hey, John's ministry, was that from heaven or from men? And it silenced them because they didn't want to answer and put their foot in their own mouth. And so understand that John was not just an obscure voice that was out there that no one was listening to, but rather he had an audience with the entire nation. And thus he brings forth his message and he reaches way deep into the heart of the men and women of Israel in his day, but also in ours. And he reveals what are the obstacles that keep a person from recognizing the person of Christ. The first obstacle is given to us in verse 7. And it's addressed to uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke doesn't tell us that, but Matthew does. And he calls them at that point, he addresses them as a brood of vipers. Now that's a great way to start a message, isn't it? I mean, here, imagine if you're here for the first time tonight. And you're, you know, hoping that maybe you'll hear something that will encourage you or give you some hope or shed light on your path. And I stand up here and the first words out of my mouth is I look at you with a scowl. And I say, you brood of vipers, or literally, you brood of poisonous snakes. But it's important to understand who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious people of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, those that held in their hands the spiritual destiny of the nation. And he calls them a brood of vipers, and thus the first obstacle that he addresses in that is the obstacle of self-righteousness. And the accusation that he brings upon the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that there's a misalignment between what they thought they were and what they actually were. See, what they thought they were is they thought they were sheep in the flock of God, capitalizing on the picture that God always paints of himself and of his people. But in actuality, what John said when he looked at them is that they weren't sheep at all, but that they were actually poisonous snakes. And the fruit, or I'm sorry, the proof that John lays to them to make his case that that's where they were is that the fruit that was coming out of their life didn't match the profession or the appearance that they were making about their lives. See, they would wear white robes and tall hats and they would appear righteous and they would be in service to God constantly. They would offer ornate and beautiful prayers and everything about their life on the outside looked as though they were right with God. But the fruit that was coming from within, the attitudes and the motives of the heart and the things that no one else could see but that God could see, that God's assessment of those people that when he looked at them, he said, you actually look more like the devil than you do like the Lord. You look like a snake. You look like a serpent. You're not on the inside what everybody else thinks that you are on the outside. There are many people that live in our world today that think they're right with God when in actuality they're not at all. I think that the current statistics 
that are out there today about people in the United States of America that claim to be Christian is about 70%. 70% of the United States of America claim to be Christian. Now ignore the title for a minute and let's pull 100% of the United States of America. Let's just ask them the question broadly that if there's a God, do you think that your life is righteous before him? And I think that the answer would be in the affirmative for close to 100% of the population. There are so many people, I think almost everybody, thinks that the way that they are living is acceptable before God. And the way that they come to that conclusion is that they often look at the few good things that they do and they completely ignore everything else. And they make their judgment and their assessment of themselves based upon the good parts of their life while they completely ignore everything else. Or the other way that they do it is that they find someone else or a group of someone else's that they deem to be less than they are or less righteous than they are. And when they compare themselves to those people, it makes them look pristine. It makes them look perfect. And so thus they bring to themselves a righteousness that's established based upon the good things about them, ignoring the evil and comparing them with people that they think are are worse. And the result of that is what you end up with is a self-righteousness, a righteousness that you have, that you have taken upon yourself because of what you think. And when a person possesses a righteousness that comes from self in those things, that's a self-righteousness. And the problem with self-righteousness is that when I'm self-righteous, or I possess a righteousness that I've ascribed to myself, it automatically disables me from seeing any fault within myself. And that was the condition of these people that John the Baptist was addressing, is that their lives were so well put together on the outside, and they had credited themselves for that, that they weren't even aware of the fact that on the inside, God saw something completely different. And so then he goes on to let them know that the source of that self-righteousness, and it's their second obstacle, it's in verse 8, and that is self-deception. He tells them this. He says, before they even have a chance to make excuses for themselves or to shut him off because they didn't like the first thing he said, John says to them, don't even think to say within yourselves that we are the seed of Abraham. Or that you have no right to accuse us that way because we are Jews. We're spiritual Israel. He removes from them the ability to make an excuse for themselves because of the name or the heritage that they had. Now for the Jew in that day, the fact that they were even still around and in that land was for them a sign or an assumption, a cause for the assumption that we must be okay with God. I mean, Hey, we have the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the history of David and Solomon and the glory that Israel was. And yeah, we went into captivity, but now we're back. And it must be the favor of God upon us and God's approval upon us because we're even still here. And no matter what happens, nothing can destroy us. And so we must be right with God. And John's answer to that rationale was this. He said, don't think to say that we have Abraham as our father, for God is able from these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Essentially, what he's saying is this, is that your existence has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God's purpose. You're here because God promised you would be here. 
And the fact that you're here is no way to measure the fact that you are right with God. And what this is, it's a righteousness by association. Well, I'm a member of Israel, and therefore I'm right with God. Don't people do that today? Well, I'm a member of such and such a church. And I've been a tithing member in good standing for so long, so automatically I'm right with God. Or I've been born into a Christian home, and I've been taught the scriptures, and my parents have served faithfully in the church for years. And, you know, I go sometimes, but I'm part of a Christian family, and so of course I'm saved. I'm saved by association with God. Or some people say, well, I'm an American. I mean, this is a Christian nation. So just by default, I mean, it's the base religion of our country. And so if I'm a citizen of this country, then that must make me okay with God. Or even worse, there's some people that say this. They say, well, the fact that I'm in good health and the fact that there's nothing really wrong in my life, the fact that I don't have any real serious problems, and yeah, I'm not doing things the way my parents maybe say or that a preacher might say, but God's not judging me. And so therefore, because my life is going okay, I must just be okay with God. But where is the fruit or what is the fruit in your life that shows what you really are? That's what measures. It's not what we say we are or what we are by association or because that they were Jews that automatically they were righteous. John calls them to examine their fruit. He says, look at the fruit of your life. Does the fruit match the profession? You're supposed to be the people of God walking in obedience to God. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees that do not bear fruit. And so the root of self-deception that leads to self-righteousness is to think that God sees what everyone else sees and that God must judge the way everyone else judges. And so someone looks at our life and they see that we have things on the outward fairly well put together. The appearance of a good job and a good income and a healthy family and a wholesome uh, existence. And, 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 and because they equate with us no fault, and no sign of fault, we think that that's what God sees too. But that's not what God sees. The Bible says that God sees right into the very heart of hearts. And the Bible says that he sees our thoughts as though they're naked and open before him. He sees the motives and the reasons why we do what we do. And he judges us not according to what people see on the outside, but according to what he sees going on on the inside. And that's the way that God judges when he looks at a person. And John says, what God sees about your life is way different than what others see about your life and what you see about your own life. And so you're not right before God. Now, at this point, John's got their attention. And I think that he would, right? I mean, I would have your attention if I approached you that way tonight and said to you, you're a brood of vipers and you're not right with God and the wrath of God is upon your life. You're in danger of judgment right now. He's got their attention. And because he was willing to tell them the truth about their condition and he wouldn't let them make excuses to wiggle out, they respond and they ask him the question. They say, okay, we agree. There's something that resonates, but what should we do about it? And then he begins to answer them and he answers three different people and he answers them three different ways. But in so doing, he uncovers three more obstacles that would keep them from recognizing Christ when he comes. The first group of people that he answers as they ask him what he should do is the common people. That would be the rich and the poor alike, just the general citizens of Israel that held no title or status, just Joe Schmo uh, who, who works down the block um, faithfully and, and is raising his family. And they ask him and they say, what should we do? And John's answer to them is that if you have two coats, 
then give to him that doesn't have one. If you have an inner tunic and an outer tunic, then give one of those up to someone that doesn't have anything at all. Or if you have food and you see someone that has a need, then give up of your food and help somebody else that has need. And the question that he's essentially asking them is when is the last time that you actually sacrificed or gave up something of yourself to help somebody else? And the accusation that he's subtly bringing to them is that they are a self-absorbed people, that they are constantly consumed with themselves feeding themselves, clothing themselves, worried about their well-being, how they're feeling, how they're doing, and to a point where there is absolutely no concern for how anyone else is doing in life. It is totally and completely all about them. They are just, they are the center of the very universe itself. And there's a self-absorption there. The second group of people he talks to is the publicans or the tax collectors. And the tax collectors were hated group of people in Israel, even as the IRS is a hated group of people today. And you know that when the IRS is coming to your services, either you're in big trouble or there's a serious revival of the Holy Ghost going on. But the IRS shows up at John the Baptist service and even the publicans ask the question. Now, the way that they would make their money is that they would have a quota of money that they would have to raise for Rome. It was required of the people to pay. And it was the tax collector's job to get that money. But any money that they could squeeze out of the general public over and above what was required by Roman law, that would be given then to the tax collector. And so they were cheats. They were people that were enriching themselves on the backs of their fellow citizens and the people of Israel. And thus, um, the, 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 the indictment and really the obstacle that John is addressing in talking to the tax collectors is that of self-exaltation. Using other people to bring yourself up higher. Taking what you can, as much as you can, from everyone else in order to enrich yourself, to exalt yourself. To in some way pad your income and your future at the expense of everyone else. It's a picture of just a person who's climbing the ladder of life and stepping on as many hands and heads as they can in order to get to the top because that's the way we roll in this world. He who's the strongest survives. And that was the mentality of the tax collectors and it was the fruit of their life in the way that they were even making their very money. And so John's exhortation to them is that they're to no longer exact more than is required and they're to take only what is absolutely fair and they're to live off of um, what is provided for them just in their base salary. Then the third group of people uh, that, that he addresses is the soldiers. And the, the, the thing that he tells them is he says, do violence to no man and accuse no one falsely and be content with your wages. And the idea behind what the soldiers were doing in that is that they were always looking out for their own best interest. Whatever they had to do to come out on top in a situation, they were going to do it. And if that was violence, then they were, they were willing and ready to beat anybody down or, or to, to kill anybody or to just do whatever they had to do because they were going to come out on top. If they had to accuse someone falsely in order to clear their own name, then they were going to accuse someone falsely because, that, hey, it's me first and, uh, and I'm, going to, I'm going to come out on top in this thing. And then he says to be content uh, then with the wages. And so the idea was self-interest in the thing. And so John basically, in his message to these people, he exposes five different things that would be obstacles in the heart and in the life that would keep them from recognizing Christ when he would come. 
self-righteousness, and then a self-deception, and then self-absorption, and then self-exaltation, and then finally, a self-interest. Now, I can't help but notice what the common denominator is in all of those obstacles. It's self. 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 It's the greatest and really the only obstacle that manifests itself in a thousand ways in a person's life that ultimately keeps them from everything that's good in life. C.S. Lewis said this, that self is the smallest prison in the world. And there's nothing worse than to be trapped within the tiny cell of the three walls of me, myself, and I. And there's such truth in that, isn't there? Any of us that are familiar with self and understand what it means to live for ourselves, it's a horrible place to live. But here's the problem, is that self and the self-life is at the very core of the fallen condition of man. See, when Adam was in the Garden of Eden before sin entered human, humankind, Adam was in perfect communion and fellowship with God. His spirit was alive because he was joined with the Father. His soul was thus satisfied because the fullness of the Father was his and Adam was complete. And thus his body was irrelevant. He had a body, there was a flesh, but he wasn't even aware of it because he was so filled and satisfied with God. But when Adam sinned and brought sin upon the human race, his spiritual connection with God was broken. The two that were one were now two. They were separated. And as soon as that happened, Adam became aware of his need. That's why he clothed himself with Eve. They immediately became aware of their nakedness, their vulnerability, that they were empty. And thus the soul of man at that point became dissatisfied in the pursuit and endeavor of man all the days of his life was to try to feed his flesh with whatever he could in order to try to satisfy his soul that was no longer in fellowship with God. And thus the plight of the human condition that's separated and alienated from God is that we are a selfish people, but that we can never satisfy the longing that we have by trying to gratify the desires of the self. And thus we're fallen. And thus we're selfish and we're self-consumed and self-absorbed and we're trapped within the prison of self. (laughs) And often, self is the greatest obstacle that keeps a person from coming to Christ. Now, what does John the Baptist tell them that they are to do with this revelation that's now been brought right into the forefront of their existence? That they're a selfish, unrighteous people that are under the wrath of God His message to them is simple and singular. He says, repent. That his message was repentance for the remission of sins. Now, when I say that word, I know that there's something in you. Well, maybe not because I didn't direct it at you. I directed it at the people in the text. But if I did direct it at you and I said, repent, I know that your blood pressure would go up perhaps. Because there's something about that word in our society, or maybe it's just in the human condition that we hate. Because it implies that we're something wrong, that we're thinking wrong, that we're behaving wrong, that we're acting wrong, that we're driven wrong, that there's something wrong about our lives, and there's something that needs to change. That's an offense to the human condition, but it's what John tells them to do. The word repent simply means this. It means to change your mind. It means to reassess. It means to have an afterthought. The idea is that you are living a particular life or you're on a particular path 
and you see what that path is and you see where that path leads, but then you take a break from that path for a minute and you step away from it and you reassess the way that you've been living and where that life is leading you. And you change your mind about the way that you've been living and what you've been doing and where you are going because you want to trade that for something else. That's what it means to repent and then to actually make that decision and then to change. And so John calls them to change their mind, but then he adds to that call to repentance that they're not only to repent, but they're to repent with fruit. He says to bring forth fruits that are worthy of repentance. And that word worthy that he uses there in that verse is a word that means of equal weight. That the change in your life is equal or of equal weight to to the repentance that you are performing or to what you once were. Is that there's a show through your behavior that demonstrates that you're different from what you once were. And so it's not just a simply saying that I've repented or saying that I agree with a certain life but it's an actual doing of the life that is there. Now, listen, and if, you've, if I've lost you, then come back here. Because at this point, this is where the ministry of John the Baptist begins to make sense. This is the reason why a forerunner was sent to pave the way, to straighten the path for the coming of Christ. Here's the reason. A behavior in a person's life is always a byproduct of their nature, okay? In other words, the reason why a person does selfish things is because a person has a selfish nature. What we are becomes what we do. That's why we are what we do. Now, you can change your behavior for a little while, but ultimately what you are on the inside is always gonna come out in the end. Sometimes we see people around the church, you see them all over the place, that they dye their hair. They want to change something about their outward appearance. They're ready for something new, and so they get some color, they get some highlights. But after a little while, what's on the inside and what they really are is going to come out, and thus you see the roots begin to grow, and the original color of the hair just comes back, because that's what they are. It's the way they're made, you see. So what a person is on the inside is always going to come out on the outside. Now, that means that you can change a behavior for a little while. You can agree that, yes, I'm selfish. I'm a self-righteous person. I can agree, and I do agree. I am self-absorbed. Do you know who I think about 99% of the time? You. No. (laughs) I think about me because I'm a human being that's fallen and in the sinful condition. So I know what it means to be self-absorbed, and I'm a self-absorbed person. And I can be self-righteous and I can be self-deceived because I don't want to look at the things about me that I don't like. And I can have self-enrichment and I can have self-interest. All of those things are true of me and I agree that it's wrong. So what I do is I repent and I seek to change those things about myself that I don't like, that shouldn't be. And so for a while I go, others, 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 others. I'm going to think about others. I'm thinking about others. I'm thinking about others. I'm thinking about what others think. I'm thinking about what others think about me. I'm thinking, you know, and, and what happens is that that purposing within me to try to be what I'm supposed to be and do what I'm supposed to do is overcome by what I really am on the inside. And eventually I have to come to terms with the fact that I am not what I'm supposed to be. What do you do then? When myself is looking me right back in the mirror. See, repentance 
in and of itself does not fix anyone. You can agree that you're living wrong and you can desire to change. And you can say, I change my mind and I repent of my life. But do you know that that's as far as you can go? That's what Jesus said. Remember? Remember when Peter grabbed his sword and he said, Jesus, I will die with you. I will never deny you. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, calm down. Sit down for a minute. You're going to deny me three times before the day is over. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. You're fallen. You don't possess the strength to change yourself. Paul, the apostle, would write the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 7, he would paint the most beautiful picture of the self-life and the struggle to get free of the self-life. He would say, I agree that the ways of God are right and good. And I also agree that my ways are fallen and wrong. And the things that I want to do, I find that I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And he had this frustration battle that was going on because he wanted to do what was right, but he couldn't find the strength or the ability to do it. He said this. He said, to will is present with me, but how to perform what is right, I do not find. I can want it, but I cannot do it. And unless there is a changed nature, then all change within my life will result as being temporary or will result in absolute failure. And here's the point, is that John's baptism of repentance could produce a temporary cleansing and a promising that, God, I'm going to try harder and do better. But John's baptism could not produce righteousness. And that was not his ministry. John was not called to produce righteousness. He was called to expose the sinful condition of the heart. And when a person can recognize the sinful condition of their heart, now the mountains have been leveled, the valleys have been filled, the crooked has been made straight, the rough places are made smooth, and they can see clearly what they are and what they cannot do, and they recognize that there's a need for someone else or something else to do in me what I cannot do for myself. And that was the ministry of John the Baptist, to be the voice calling in the wilderness, and he removed or revealed what those obstacles are. Now, it worked. John's message worked in the hearts of the people, and thus, when we come to verse 17... Back in Luke chapter 3, actually it's in verse 15, it says that the people were in expectation and all men mused in their hearts of John whether he were the Christ or not. There was an expectation. There was a buzz. There was something going on in the spirit where people were excited and at the same time expected. There was, there was something going on and they said, well, is this man the Christ? And here was John's answer to that. Listen to it. It says that John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire that is unquestionable. John makes two statements about the coming Christ that he was called to point the way to here. Number one is he says that he is mightier than I. Mightier to the point that I am not even worthy to be his slave. 
The lowest slave in a household would be the person that would unloose the latchet of a sandal of a Jewish man or a Jewish woman. And even a Jewish slave wouldn't untie the latch of a sandal. It was the most degrading thing. And thus John is putting himself so far under Jesus in rank and authority that he's saying, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest slave within his household. But then the second statement that he makes about the coming Christ is that his baptism is a mightier baptism to mine as fire is mighty to water. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And then with that, and listen, he brings up the illustration of separating wheat from chaff. And that's not poetry. That's not just John trying to make emphasis about what he's saying. That's on purpose. We've talked extensively in past studies about how they would harvest the grain. And after harvesting the bare grain, the next step was to separate the wheat that was valuable from the chaff that was worthless. And whether it would be the stomping of an ox or whether it would be the grinding at the mill of a giant wheel over the grain, the harvested grain, something had to be done to break the valuable wheat berry from the protective chaff that was of no value and just basically waste and worthless. And what John is saying here is that Jesus is the one that through his baptism of fire and the Holy Spirit and his work within a life, he is the one through his power that is able to separate what in us is of any value from what is of absolutely no value at all. John's baptism of repentance could never do that, but what Jesus is able to do is separate the sinner from their sinful nature. And he's the one that's the savior that's able to do that. And so thus, here's the summation of what John says. That his baptism was a baptism of repentance unto action, but it could not bring about any lasting change. It could simply expose the problem. That's as far as John could take the people to make them understand that they needed a savior. But Jesus' baptism was a baptism of repentance unto surrender, not unto action. And that would be a complete yielding of the life to his lordship and then granting him complete access to all that we are inside and out so that he can produce something real and living and lasting from the inside. And the result of his baptism and his spirit's work within our life is that there would be a lasting change. He can provide power in our lives to do what we cannot do. John chapter 1, verse 12, concerning the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ, John said this, to as many as received him as Lord and Savior of their life, to them he gives power, and there's the word power, John couldn't produce power, power to be called the sons and daughters of God, the children of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle Paul would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. See, it isn't just a repentance where we huff and puff and change our lives. But God comes into our lives and he produces in us by the power of his Holy Spirit the power to do what we can't do for ourselves and to make us what we could never make ourselves. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, the Apostle Paul would write again to Timothy and he'd say that he has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but he's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And that's the promise of the gospel is that when Jesus Christ comes into a life, that life no longer stays the same. It's changed from the inside and there's power to no longer be what you once were so that you could be what you once were not. It goes on, Paul writes, I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 5, and after talking about the, the sinful condition of man, he says that they'll be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, rude, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, heady, high-minded. I mean, he just goes on and on and on about the sinful condition of man, but he lays this to their charge. He says this. He says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof meaning that they profess everything outwardly and they look like what they're supposed to look like on the outside, but there's been no power placed in their life to break them from the self-life of what they once were. So what is the power that God gives to us when we receive Christ and the baptism of his spirit into our lives? The answer is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, when the apostle Paul says very simply that he works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. See, the baptism of John could bring them to a place where they would will, but the baptism of John could never bring them to a place where they could do because it's not in us to do. We're fallen, we're sinful. But his power is that he works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And thus the power of Christ within our lives when we receive him by faith is that he can break the chaff of self away from the soul that he created and he's able to redeem and restore what he's made and bring forth lasting change. But recognize something, that there's a common denominator between the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ. You know what it is? That in both of them, there's a call to repent. And I believe that the call to repent and the act of repentance is largely lacking in the professing church today. There are many people that have accepted Christ, but they've accepted Christ without repenting. See, what Jesus said to us is he said that there's a broad way that leads to destruction, meaning that many paths, many ways, many ideas, many thoughts and lifestyles that people have, but those thoughts and lifestyles and ways, they all lead to destruction. But then Jesus said that's not the way everyone has to go. Because there's a narrow way, and that way leads to eternal life. Few find it, but there is a way that leads to life. And here's what repentance looks like in the life of a human being. Is that they recognize that they're on the broad path that leads to destruction. That the way that they're living, the things that they're doing, are not acceptable before God. And that if they continue to walk on that path and live that way, then they're going to end up where that path ends up. And they're going to end up separated from God for all of eternity. And a repentant person takes 10 steps back from that path, looks at it and recognizes it for what it, what it is, and then makes a decision that they no longer want to live that life and walk on that path, and they want to remove themselves or be removed from that path and then placed upon the path that God lays out in the scripture that he calls narrow and sure. And so a repentant person that receives Christ Jesus is supernaturally taken off of this path of destruction and placed upon a path of righteousness. And the evidence of that is that there's a changed life because he gives them power to change their life. 
Now, here's what a lot of people do in the church, at least in America today and probably all around the world, is that they don't hear a call to repent. They hear a call to accept. Accept for the kingdom of God is at hand. No, 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 that's not what it says. It says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. See, when I just accept Christ without repentance, I haven't gotten onto the narrow path. What I've done is I've actually made the broad path a little bit wider. Because I previously accepted all of these ideas and all this lifestyle, and now I'm going to add Jesus and his way to that. I'm accepting Christ. I'm inviting Christ into my life. I'm making a profession of faith. But listen, without repentance, you're still on that same path. And you can accept Christ, and you can believe the gospel, but if you don't repent of your sins, then you're still in your sins. And the result of that is that you're going to end up right where you would have ended up if you had just stayed without accepting Christ at all. To accept without repentance means no salvation. Well, the summation of John's ministry, in verse 18, it says, with many other things in his exhortation, he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So at some point, Herod Antipas took a liking to Herod Philip's wife. And however he did it, he did it. He ended up with her instead of Philip. And when John stood before Herod, John had the boldness to stand before Herod and say, what you did is wrong and you're in sin. And because of that and the way it fell out with Herodias, John ends up in prison for it. You know what I like about John in this? Is that he was the same man when he was in the wilderness as he was when he was in the palace. That he was willing to stand in the face of authority in the king and declare the truth no matter what. We'll pause there for tonight because we're, uh, we've gone late in our time, though we were uh, set to finish the chapter um, tonight in the thing. And the musicians can come at this point. But, but as we close the service tonight, I want to ask you a very searching question. You're here tonight on a Wednesday night. I assume that for most of you, at least, it's because you want a little bit more of the Bible than you just get in a normal basis. And you want to seize every opportunity you can, whatever. Let me ask you this. You're here tonight professing Christian. Have you truly repented of your sins? Or have you simply accepted Jesus into your life? It is possible to believe and yet not to have repented. In Acts chapter 9, there's a man by the name of Simon called Simon the Sorcerer. And we're told in that text there that he was a man of authority because he was a magician and he used magic to deceive the people and he elevated himself as being one great one. And the people really liked Simon because of the things that he did and the charisma that he had. But it tells us that Philip, the evangelist, came into the area, the region where they were, and a revival broke out. And it says that when people were getting saved, it says that Simon, the sorcerer, that he came and he also heard the message of Philip. And it says, listen, that he believed also and that he was baptized and that he continued with Philip. Meaning that he professed, he was dunked, and then he sat and he listened to the Bible studies. But then a few weeks later, the apostle Peter comes in for a visit to see what's going on. And when Peter arrives, he realizes, you know what, these people are missing something, and he begins to pray for them that they would receive Holy Spirit power. And when Simon the sorcerer saw Peter lay hands on people and the Holy Spirit fall on them, Simon secretly pulled Peter aside. And he said, hey, 
this is a pretty good gig you got going here. I'll tell you what. I'll pay you as much as you want and you teach me how to lay hands on people so that when I pray for them, they receive the Holy Spirit as well. And Peter, with steely eyes, looked right at Simon in the face and he said, your money perish with you for I perceive that you're in the gall of bitterness and yet in your sins. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness. For I perceive that you are not right in the sight of God. See, he believed, he was baptized, he listened to Bible studies, but he was unchanged. He didn't repent. He buried the sinful self underneath a phony reformation of behavior for a time until the flesh could seize its opportunity again and exalt itself above the revival that was going on. He hadn't repented. I don't think he didn't believe. He just didn't want to part with the old life. But I'm here to tell you tonight this, is that if you think that because you've simply made a profession in Jesus Christ and accepted him, but yet you haven't decided that the way that you're on is wrong and that you want to be on his way and that there's been no change in your life, then you're deceiving yourself because without repentance, there's no remission of sins. Now that doesn't mean that you're sinlessly perfect because God deals with us with different things throughout the span of our life. There's a constant change that's taking place as the Holy Spirit works within our heart. But to simply just accept Christ and to say, well, I'm going to heaven because I came forward or raise my hand. Don't deceive yourself. Without repentance, There's no remission. But here's the good news, is that with Jesus, there's power to change your life. What amazes me is that John's message was the same no matter who he was talking to. Tax collector, you need to repent. Publican, sinner, soldier, rich man, poor man, the solution is the same. You need to repent. And in him, in Christ, there is power for your life to be changed. And when you're willing to yield yourself completely to him, his power will be manifested in you and you'll be changed from the inside out. I can testify to that because I know what I once was and I know what I am now. And that's by no means perfect, but I've seen his work in my life performing what I could never perform for myself. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. We thank you, Lord, for what it means. We thank you, Lord, that you weren't willing to leave us dead in our sins and the unrighteousness of our self-life, but that you made a way, Lord, that we might repent and be set free from the prison of self. So tonight, Lord, we give thanks to you for who you are and what you've done.